The city of Vienna has played host to several important diplomatic congresses and negotiations throughout its history, even if they have proved unsuccessful when looking at the outcome of human history. Therefore, it seems poetic that current negotiations to resurrect the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the JCPOA, and the Iranian nuclear deal between Iran and the United States are taking place in Vienna right now. The U.S. had originally withdrawn from the agreement under the Trump administration and reimposed harsh economic sanctions on Iran, but now seeks to prevent the rise of a nuclear Iran to resurrect the deal. This brings us to the question of how these negotiations are going currently and how they could possibly turn out. From Seton Hall University at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation in Iran today is David Babigian. Hi, David. Hello. And focusing on the international aspect today is Kieran Buzenson. Hi, Kieran. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for having both of you guys on here. All right, let's get into the background of the original agreement in place, guys, because it's been a few years since the JCPOA was in the news. So I just want to start with a simple question to you both. What is the JCPOA? Sure. So the JCPOA, or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, is an agreement on the Iranian nuclear program reached in Vienna in July 2015 between Iran and the P5 plus one, so the permanent members of the Security Council, so China, France, Russia, uh, the United Kingdom, and the United States, plus Germany. This was also signed and went into effect in 2015. It was spurred on by the Iranian nuclear program's reactivation during the early 2000s. P plus, P5 plus 1 was formed in 2006 as a reaction to this, and multilateral bilateral talks continued for many years up until the actual signing of the deal. The main stipulation of the agreement was to see the Iranian government liquidate its stockpile of medium-rich uranium and reduce its low-enriched uranium stockpile by 98% over 13 years with a hard cap on how much uranium could be enriched over a 15-year period. In turn for compliance with the reduction of enriched uranium stockpiles, UN Security Council nuclear sanctions on Iran would be partially and eventually totally loosened to be adjusted over time depending on compliance with the deal. I see. So to, uh, just to sum up the information previously stated by both of you, what it would be safe to say is that the obligations of both sides agree upon the agreement is for the Iranian government to quit enriching uranium to possibly obtain a nuclear bomb. And in return for not pursuing nuclear weapons, they will have these harsh economic sanctions that have been placed on them for several decades taken away, and they will gradually be accepted more into the global economy. Yes, that's correct. I, I think it's also important to contextualize this briefly as you know, why did they pursue a nuclear program in the first place? David, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I wanted to uh, add something first, but then, yes, I will answer. Sure. So one of the goals of it was to increase the breakout time that, I, uh, that Iran had if they wanted to create a nuclear bomb. So before the deal was made, Iran had enough uh, enriched uranium to make eight to ten bombs, and they could make these bombs in about two to three months if they committed the proper resources. And the Obama administration um, wanted to remove key elements that would um, make the breakout time about a year or more, which means that it would take them about a year to make a bomb. So if it was found that they're making a bomb, there could be a lot of a lot of time for negotiations and stuff like that. Correct. So, yeah, in some ways it actually was a, a delaying tactic. But as it's kind of evolved over the years, I think people are potentially looking at a more long-term solution. And I want to get your thoughts on this, David. I, I, I'm of the opinion that... Iran pursued this program of, of reactivating their, their nuclear program and pursuing 
possibly nuclear weapons as a bit of a reaction to American and Western military adventurism, uh, particularly in the early 2000s. Obviously, the invasion of Iraq was the catalyst for a lot of foreign policy changes within the Middle East. But I feel like for Iran, seeing the U.S. invade Iraq without that many consequences, and then later Libya in 2011 and deposing Gaddafi, which was also pursuing nuclear weapons program, that potentially its pursuit of nuclear weapons was one of needing, you know, this uh, <laughs> is necessitated by a sense that they needed to survive, um, that it was one of the only guarantees that they had against essentially being being toppled. Uh, yes. You also left out how um, the United States was heavily involved in Iran's next door neighbor, uh, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And um, I do think that it was a lot of it was self-defense related because, you know, they saw the United States do all this stuff, like, for example, what they did in Iraq with little to no consequences. And they thought, well, we could be next, so let's pursue our own self-defense. And it's a very uh, realist view on the world. Yeah, it's not too dissimilar from other nations that have come into international attention for their nuclear programs, such as North Korea. Yes. So, yeah. so, to also sum up the background of the original agreement, what caused the United States to pull out of this agreement originally under the Trump administration? Sure. So in 2018, Israel's prime minister, in a televised speech, he pulled the curtain away from a shelf of files, and there are copies of some 55,000 documents that Israel had obtained from uh, Iran's secret nuclear archive. And essentially, they're just saying that they had been creating or having nuclear activities kind of in secret. And so uh, Donald Trump said that President Israel's President uh, Netanyahu's revelations uh, showed that they are 100% correct, and he described the nuclear agreement as the worst deal ever, ever signed. So what Trump did was he pulled out of the agreement, which he called defective at its core, and he reinstated all U.S. sanctions on Iran that November as part of his uh, maximum pressure campaign, uh, campaign to compel the country to negotiate uh, a replacement that would also curb its ballistic missile program and involvement in uh, local regional conflicts. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty spot on. Uh, the only other thing I might add was, um, the, you know, the Israel lobby within the United States to align U.S. foreign policy with that of Israel was also actually very instrumental in pushing the Trump administration in this direction as they formed a significant part of, of that base. But yeah, I, I think that's pretty spot on. Yeah, I think we'll get definitely get into the role of, of Israel later, and that's how Israel has reacted to the current negotiations, how they have reacted to the agreement in the past. But I also want to talk specifically about the effects of the American withdrawal from the JCPOA. So what actions has the Iranian government taken in response to the American withdrawal from the agreement? So um, Iran started uh, exceeding the agreed-upon limits in its stockpile of low-enriched uranium in 2019 and began enriching the uranium to higher concentrations. And also in 2020, I believe it was January 2020, when they killed uh, General Soleimani, um, Iran announced that it would no longer limit its uranium enrichment. So they kind of saw that the United States pulled out and they said, well, if they're not going to keep their end of the bargain, why do we have to keep ours? Yeah, I mean, again, more or less, I think that's spot on. Uh, it was also obviously detrimental to U.S. credibility for long-term multilateral agreements. And I think the custom Soleimani thing is important as well, though, because there are actually different factions within Iran um, who want different things out of the JCPOA or its existence entirely. Um, so, I, I, would you mind elaborating a little bit on the structure of the Iranian government and the different and, and different political actors at play? I think it's an important thing to cover when, when we're talking about the U.S. relationship because it's very they're very interdependent. Sure. So, the Iranian government, like the United States, has three different branches. Uh, they have an executive branch, which has a president who uh, is elected in four-year terms, and then they also have a supreme leader who um, has a life appointment, and the Supreme Leader is appointed by an, an assembly of experts, and the current Supreme Leader is um, Ali uh, Kamani, 
who has been the Supreme Leader since 1989. Um, they also have a judicial branch, uh, which is like the United States, a Supreme Court, and um, they take jurisdiction over all of the constitutional cases. And then finally, they have a legislative branch, which has 290 members, and essentially, like the United States, they draft legislation and ratify treaties. And same thing as a president, it's four-year cycles of power. So in many ways, they actually not necessarily have the identical governmental structure, but some of the inconsistency in U.S. foreign policy that results from the changing administrations can actually also happen in Iran. Yes. Okay. I think you both are on to an important point here, but there's also the changing of the president and four-year terms in Iranian mm -hmm. government, but there's also the supreme leader who has a life appointment. Is that correct, David? Uh, yes, that is correct. I see. I see. So on this kind of trend of the Iranian political situation, what is the current stance of like the Iranian government's political leaders? Do they support the negotiations? Do they do not support the negotiations? What is the stance, kind of? Well, as of right now, they're relatively hesitant about it because if you take a look at what the United States did, they opted into a deal. And then as soon as there was a change in political party that was in power, they completely abandoned the deal. So Iran has no reason to trust the United States with this deal. So they're being very cautious with their renegotiations with the uh, Biden administration. I mean, I think another important thing to add, though, is, is the, the long-term impact of, of the sanctions that had been established in Iran have slowly but surely seen more hardline figures and groups come into power in Iran. Um, do you want to elaborate a little bit about the election that happened last year? Well, there was a, there was a change in power. Um, Ibrahim Raisi became president, and he's more of a... He's more hard on. He's more he's more strict than the former president. Um, is there anything you would like to add to that? Yeah, I, I think it's an important dynamic because, especially with the, the the recent change in administrations within the U.S. Right, as we've kind of um, been touching on this theme of inconsistency with U.S. foreign policy, the current administration kind of dragged their feet, frankly, um, in in terms of re-entering the JCPOA, which actually gave the Iranian government time to change administrations as well. And critically, I think, as you mentioned, more or less the the, the current faction that's in power within Iran is much more hardline, so they're going to be trying to eke out mo uh, more on their end of, the, of any future agreement within the JCPOA framework. I see. So you both mentioned like the hesitancy of the Iranian government to enter into negotiations again for fear of what the United States may do as soon as someone else takes power, and also more hardliners. But what is kind of the support of the Iranian people? Is there amongst the common people, the voters of the Iranians? So... There was actually surveys that were done on this, and um, in one survey, 68% of uh, Iranian people answered yes to the question, uh, did Iranian leadership negotiate a good deal with your country? And many people believed that it would improve their economic situation and also improve relations uh, with the United States. So I would say that these this negotiations, they do have the backing of uh, the Iranian people. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair to say. I'm, most people want to live a life where price, prices don't keep increasing and have access to luxury goods and foreign travel and all these things. It's a very normal response, I think. Yeah. In the absence of negotiations, I think another important question to consider is, is, have the Iranians made substantial developments towards becoming a nuclear power? Is the framework of the negotiations different than when this, the JCPOA was first negotiated? Yeah, so I mean, the second time around, we don't know as much because the talks are still cur currently ongoing, and much of uh, much of the media coverage is currently absorbed by events in Ukraine, rightfully so, I think. But there's simply just not as much information available. Um, some of it is obviously, you know, requires high level security clearance, etc. So it's difficult to say exactly 
what the terms of the deal as they stand, as it's being negotiated right now. But we kind of have an idea of what certain countries want out of it, uh, what certain ones expect. I touched a little bit on Iran, which is going to want more out of this deal, probably more sanctions to be loosened, um, and and you know, some sort of guarantee that you know countries like the U.S. will um, maintain <laughs> maintain their presence in the agreement long enough to actually see it through. But yeah, I mean, is there anything to add on that, David? Well, I think that, um, as you mentioned, the United States maintaining their part in the agreement, uh, that's very tough because the Biden administration, they cannot guarantee that the United States will stay in it because, as what previously happened, um, a change in the political party can lead, you know, the the new leader when, uh, assuming that uh, Biden does not win in 2024, there'll be a new leader. Unless the new leader does not approve of this, he can pull the United States out of it. And then at that point, the United States... They've just completely b- betrayed Iran twice, and they, in the future, they're just going to have no reason to trust the U.S. I think we've paid a lot of attention to the American withdrawal from the agreement, rightfully so. But I also want to get both of your reactions or comments on how the rest of the nations that were involved in the JCPOA, how they reacted to the American withdrawal, and what have they done in the meantime? Yeah, sure. So, you know, like I said earlier, we can't really tell what the current terms of the agreement are, but we know what a lot of these countries want going in. So just kind of briefly running through, you know, I'm going to to place Europe into one block because most of the EU and particularly the European countries involved in this more or less want the same thing. So within uh, P5 plus one, you have France, the United Kingdom and Germany. They're mostly lined with U.S. foreign policy objectives in this particular instance. Um, They do have some ties to the Saudi regime, which we'll get to within the United States, which plays into this and the kind of Cold War that's been going on in the Middle East between Iran and Saudi. But the the critical thing that they want are the stabilization of global, um, the the global fuel market, which has been extremely volatile uh, since the Russian-Ukraine conflict broke out. Europe, more so than the United States and much of the rest of the world, is highly dependent on um, Russian oil and natural gas, but in general imports because they don't produce much. So a key thing that they're going to want to get out of this is Iranian oil to flow more. And while, as we may discuss, that has a delayed effect, right, it takes a while for that oil to get to market, for it to process, to be refined, and to actually feel the effect of the pump, um, it's important to get that thing going for, for Europe. China is also an interesting angle to look at and important to note. Um, They buy a lot of Iranian oil as well, so they have an interest in having this deal go through and loosening the sanctions. Um, They're just as vulnerable to volatile uh, fuel markets as well. But they also want to keep the general number of nuclear powers low. Uh, Most most nuclear powers, which many of which are involved here, you know, the U.S., Russia, China, France, and U.K., they want to keep the overall number of nuclear powers low to preserve strategic initiative. In, in their foreign policy. And then lastly, we have Russia itself, which um, is being put in an interesting position this time around. Part of these volatile fuel prices that I've been talking about are an important part of Russian leverage in any uh, prospective peace deal within Ukraine. So there's a possibility that they might want to take it, tank the agreement altogether, or drag their feet because they don't want Iranian oil to reach the market. That being said, of course, they also have strategic um, interests in keeping the overall number of nuclear powers low. But where exactly they're going to go with this kind of remains to be seen. Yeah, and just to um, add a little bit, uh, according to some sources, uh, Iran has actually been moving millions of barrels uh, of oil into tankers since December in preparation for the deal so um, that their oil will be able to hit the markets right away. And Kiran, I have a a question for you. So you were talking about how um, Russia kind of, I don't want to say doesn't really want this deal to happen, but they kind of want to keep... Um, oil price is volatile, um, so you know they can uh, with the situation in Ukraine, so they can kind of keep profiting off of it. So my question is, do you see the possibility of there being a separate agreement uh, made that potentially excludes Russia, like a 
like a P4 plus one or something along uh, those lines? Yeah, I, I do think it's a distinct possibility. Uh, as we kind of brought up with the U.S. and it's kind of frankly schizophrenic <laughs> relationship to, uh, to the JCPOA, I think it's entirely possible that you might find Iran in a position where it wants to just make a deal with um, the European powers in China. Mm-hmm. They're simply more reliable when it comes to this. They're a little more invested in Iranian oil uh, flowing. Not that the U.S. isn't, but the lack of dependency, I think, is, a, is an exacerbating factor. But I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, given Russia's current predicament and having been labeled as essentially a pariah state <laughs> in the eyes of the world, I wouldn't be surprised if the Iranians want to distance from them um, and seek some sort of reconciliation with the United States and, and, and Europe um, in particular. I think another thing that we should talk about as well is the, the Iranian and Saudi element, which is an, an important part of this um, dynamic. You know, you have this Cold War, which has been going on in the Middle East um, for more or less the last last 20 years, but particularly going back to the Cold War uh, when the U.S. decided to support Saudi Arabia after uh, the Iranian government changed. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that might how that might influence this? Sure. So the United States obviously is um, friendly with Saudi Arabia uh, because, shocker, but Saudi Arabia has a lot of oil and the United States loves oil. I know who, who could have thought of that, <laughs> but um, so the the Saudis could definitely be seeing um, these negotiations as not necessarily a betrayal from the United States, but them kind of opening up to their enemy, and it, it may it may like have an effect on the um, Saudi relationships with the United States because then they're going to be like, why are you why are you negotiating with the enemy of us? I thought we were allies. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, I think that constitutes a betrayal, uh, yes. almost by definition. Um, I, I think part of Iran's calculus here is to actually drive a wedge between the Saudi-U.S. relationship, which I'm not entirely unopposed. Um, you know, obviously the, the Saudis have not the best track record in terms of funding terrorism and their intervention in Yemen. But it's very interesting to see the kind of the push and pull within um, the U.S.'s regional partners there um, and whether or not it actually wants more reconciliation detente with Iran as opposed to Saudi and, and maybe choose to diversify their oil income uh, from from um, from the Persian Gulf. Not to jump into the conversation, I think you guys have covered a lot of good points. On the Cold War between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the Middle East, a part of that is, takes on a religious aspect. Instead of like communism versus like a Western-style democracy, it's uh, Saudi Arabia is the major Sunni power in the mm-hmm. region, whereas Iran is the major Shiite power in the region. And there's also been a lot of proxy conflicts between these two in the Middle East. Like you mentioned, David, you mentioned Yemen and different things. How do you both think these proxy conflicts will ha- will these be affected by negotiations? I mean, critically, if Iran comes out with a strong hand out of this deal, as they did the first time around, they're going to have more money to fund the groups that they support. Um, obviously, being a Shiite power, they support pretty much anybody who's opposed to, um, you know, Saudi-related regimes. So that's in Yemen, that's in Iraq, that's in Syria. But simply, there's just going to be more cash flow, more more arms, more munitions. Um, they're going to have more flexibility with how they want to support the elements within the Middle East that they want in order to counter uh, Saudi Arabia, but also to a lesser extent, states like Israel as well. Yeah. On that point of Israel, this, we mentioned the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, which that is more, I feel, of a transactional nature of the United States ally with Saudi Arabia. However, the United States have been a long-term ally with Israel in the Middle East. So what role does Israel play in this as America's like consistent ally in the region? So uh, I did mention earlier about how the Israeli president was kind of the one who broke the news about Iran secretly having nuclear activities, um, obviously without the uh, United States knowledge. So, you know, it is clear that uh, Iran and Israel are not friends. 
you know, they, they hate each other. And the United States and Israel are friends. They love each other. So these, uh, the relationship between the two, it, it kind of comes into question when, uh, when the negotiations come into play because let's say that Iran could use the, the money that they're gaining, you know, the economic benefit of this deal in order to, let's say, fund uh, anti-Israeli stuff. And obviously uh, Israel would not be, would obviously would not condone that because, you know, they don't want, they don't want any more fighting. So I was wondering what you thought about this, Kiran, and how, um, how you think that uh, Israeli and Iranian and also Israeli and American relations uh, could be impacted by this deal. Yeah, I mean, kind of just put the cards on the table. Um, the U.S. is as in bed with Israel as they are with the Saudis. It's a very intimate relationship. There's a whole web of defense contractors, of exchange programs with um, higher education. A lot of Saudis go to Georgetown, etc., right? And a lot of them own property and assets in the United States. So these are actually very deep ties that are kind of uncomfortable for U.S. policymakers to break. Israel doesn't really get along with anybody in the region, yeah. <laughs> as they've had a, a habit of either being invaded by or starting wars with all of their immediate neighbors. They don't really prefer the Iranians over the Saudis. Um, they kind of hate them equally. They find them both to be funders of you know, Wahhabism um, or, or fundamentalist uh, Islamic ideology. Um, and so I don't think that they, you know, it's, it's kind of a lesser of two evils <laughs> choice for yeah. them, and they don't really think one is less than the other. So their, their stance is at various times being against, in favor of, and ambiguous toward uh, JCPOA, depending. They, they want to keep Saudi and Iran at each other's throats. And so having this ambiguous, well, strategic ambiguity with relation to the JCPOA is, is from their perspective, I think, uh, good political calculus um, in order to keep their foreign policy uh, stable. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Also, uh, do you think the you mentioned President uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu being the one who revealed that apparently Iran had not been complying with the agreement, but uh, there's also been elections in Israel, too, and there's changes in power there. So the as you mentioned, Kieran, the stance within Israel can kind of switch on how they deal with the rest of their neighbors or Iran or Saudi Arabia. I think we this has been a great discussion, guys, but I want to kind of wrap things up here and get your final thoughts on, do you see these negotiations turning out successfully? And if so, what will be the long-term effects of this? I'll come to you first, David. Sure. So uh, I'm going to be optimistic here. I do see uh, these negotiations coming out successfully. I think that uh, what is going on with uh, Ukraine and Russia right now, you know, the world, they need they need oil bad. And I think that Iran is definitely the power that they're going to turn to for that. And with with that need of oil, they're definitely going to try to maybe be a, a little bit uh, more favorable towards the Iranians uh, with this negotiation compared to the last one. So, yeah, what do you think, Kieran? I mean, you pretty much took it right out of my mouth. I'm not going to be overly positive uh, <laughs> in light of recent world historical events. Um but, uh, yeah, I think most of that analysis is on point. The only other thing that I would add would be that Russia's kind of a wild card. We don't know exactly what they're going to do. They don't want Iran to be a nuclear power. They don't get along with Iran. Iran supports a lot of their adversaries in places like Azerbaijan and, and Syria, um, where they Iranian-supported groups and Russian mercenaries fought each other actively many times. But they also don't want Iranian oil to reach the market and lose that leverage um, that they could use in a potential peace deal. So they're the only country to really look out for. I think much of the West and, and China as well, just because they need oil, either because they buy Iranian oil directly or they just need the global markets to stabilize, will we'll probably pursue this deal a second time around. And I think the Iranians are going to want to have more. They're, gonna, they're going to want more extractions from this deal um, than the first time around, as, as we've mentioned a few times. Mm -hmm. I see. 
just one more question just to wrap things up there. We mentioned that it's you both think that it's likely that the deal will be renegotiated, a new deal will be achieved. Does this deal last longer than the first iteration of it, or is there going to be the United States pulling out or some other nation pulling out of the agreement so much? I mean, it's contingent on two things. Uh, it, it depends on how elections go in the United States in 2024 and whether or not the current faction in Iran stays in power. But in a, the most optimistic prediction that I could give would be that there's some sort of reconciliation between the West and Iran, which has not been uh, a good relationship for quite some time, and potentially a wedge between the West and, and uh, the U.S.'s relationship with Saudi, which has frankly been a disaster, in my opinion. So I see. Well, this has been a great discussion. David Kieran, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having me. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Bobby Kyle. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Drew. Thanks for coming on. So what headlines do you have for us this week? So we have the ex-Honduras president who could face extradition to the United States to face charges, Germany, which is allying with Qatar to overcome a gas shortage, and the U.S. officially declaring that Myanmar's violence against Rohingya Muslims is a genocide. Some important headlines to be aware of. Let's start with the coverage of the Honduran ex-president. Yeah, so a judge in Honduras has ruled that the former president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, can be extradited to the United States to face criminal charges. Hernandez was arrested by Honduran authorities last month at the request of the United States government, which had previously supported him while he was in office. The three extradition charges include conspiracy to import and distribute drugs to the United States, using firearms in support of a drug trafficking conspiracy, and conspiracy to use firearms in support of drug trafficking. Definitely an interesting story and precedent to watch develop. And what about Germany? Yeah, so Germany has announced a new partnership with Qatar to supply gas to the country. This comes after Germany's ending of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Russia and a move away from the gas giant. Germany has been extremely dependent upon Russia as they have supplied the majority of Germany's natural gas for many years. Due to the war in Ukraine, however, Germany has begun looking towards moving away from Russian gas and relying on this new partnership to make up the difference. Probably the first of many similar partnerships as the conflict in Ukraine drags on. And you mentioned a new declaration by the United States government? Yeah, so more than a year after the Myanmar military took power in a coup, the United States has officially declared their actions against the Rohingya Muslims as a genocide. Since 2017, 730,000 Rohingya Muslims have been forced from their homes into neighboring Bangladesh and have been reported to be subjected to many human rights abuses. While the genocide has been happening for a long time now, the new classification raises hope that the process of holding the military accountable can finally begin. Thank you very much for coming on, Bobby. Thank you. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine Delion and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Rukulia, and of course your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.